In improvisational theatre, there's an adage that says make your partner look good. In leadership and business relationships, this means you can make personal interactions a win-win situation for both you and your colleagues. Welcome to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Speaking with guests and listeners like you, Amy uses her wisdom and wit, leading you along the road to success. Now, here's your host, Amy Carroll. Welcome, everyone, to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. As a communication coach, trainer, speaker, and author, I'm delighted to be your host and excited to bring you insights and ideas to help you solve your communication conundrums. This is the 41st episode of my show, Partner Up with Amy Carroll. If you want to find out more about me, what the show is about, feel free to listen to previous episodes on my website, carolcoaching.com. Or go directly to the voiceamerica.com business channel. Be sure to download the app or tune in using one of your favorite podcast apps. Listeners, I've got a question for you. Does your work life suffer under the pressure of a boss who can often be a jerk? Mm -hmm. If so, you're going to want to check out last week's show from June 4th. I interviewed Dr. Katrina Burroughs. She's a master certified coach, author, and keynote speaker. We discuss the difference between a demanding leader and a brilliant jerk. What are the fears of these brilliant jerks? How to, to develop a brilliant jerk's interpersonal skills. Yes, it is possible. And more. Be sure to check that out. Now, today, my guest is Dr. Marianne Schmidt-Mast. Welcome, Marianne. Hi. It's nice to be here. Yeah. And I was thinking back to how you and I both met very recently. Um, we were connected thanks to your amazing PhD student, Annalie Beckberg Genoa. That's correct. Yeah. And the way um, I got to meet Annalie was she was looking for an actor to play her avatar in her avatar entrepreneurial experiment. Yeah, exactly. So, so you're, you're in big use in our lab. <laughs> cool. And um, I got to wear for this listeners, you know, those, uh, what are those suits called, Marianne, that you wear with all the sensors on them? Yeah, they're tracking suits. Yeah, they okay. track all your movements. Okay, not to be confused with a track suit, though, a tracking suit. Very tracking. different. <laughs> yes. So, Marianne, before we jump into our discussion today, I want to give the listeners some background on you so they know who I'm talking to today. So listeners, Marianne Schmidt-Mast is a full professor of organizational behavior at HEC at the University of Lausanne here in Switzerland. Her research addresses how individuals in power hierarchies interact, perceive, and communicate, both verbally and non-verbally, how first impressions affect interpersonal interactions and evaluations, how people form accurate impressions of others, and very interestingly, how physician communication affects patient outcomes. I hope we'll talk about that in more detail at some point. Currently an associate editor of the Journal of Nonverbal Behavior and in the editorial board of the journal Leadership Quarterly. Marianne is a Society of Personality and Social, Social Psychology Fellow and an American Psychological Association Division 8 Fellow. Honored for her extraordinary, distinctive, and long-standing contributions to the science of personality and social psychology. 
And get this one, listeners, in 2018, 2019, 2020, Marianne has been named one of the 50 most influential living psychologists. That's pretty darn cool. I'm happy about the living. Right. (laughs) I would think so. I know it is very unique to say that, the living psychologist. Now, in Marianne's free time, you can imagine she doesn't have too much of that, she wrote a book, and it has such a fabulous title. It's called Leader Spritz. And the subtitle is The Interpersonal Leadership Cocktail. The book is about interpersonal uh, leadership. And the cool thing is that although it's based on scientific evidence, it's very accessible to the public. Um, so here's some examples of a few of the chapters. Um, ones that particularly liked, can we trust our brains? <laughs> Managing conflict, a lesson in diplomacy, and my personal favorite, the $14 billion question. <laughs> Maybe if we're lucky, Marianne's going to give us a little insight to that chapter. You know, and Marianne, uh, as we were speaking in the uh, last couple of days, you said something to me that really struck me. Leadership is inherently relational. And the most important factor of satisfaction at work is the quality of the relationship with the superior. Yeah. That's sometimes amazing. I know. So, um, but that's based on research. So research showed that when you ask people what or what's the most important factor, so you give them a choice between salary, uh, quality of the relation to the other colleagues or, or conditions at work, and you include the relation to the superior, well, lo and behold, people say that it is all of them are important, but one of the most important aspects is the the quality of the relation with the superior. And that's very interesting because you might know uh, if, if people are not happy at work and you, you, you remember what are the stories they tell, often they actually tell a story about their leader, their direct superior that is either incompetent or doesn't understand or what have you. So it's very important that this relationship uh, is good. Yeah, it makes me think of that quote I heard years ago. People don't leave their jobs, they leave their bosses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, tell, I'm, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here and tell me if there's truth to this. I'm guessing it's partly because my boss has a lot of power over whether I'm going to be successful or happy in my daily life. So I suppose that if I'm choosing between a positive relationship with a colleague and a positive relationship with my boss, I got to make sure that relationship with the boss is solid. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, you you depend. We are typically in, in most organizations, we are in a hierarchical structure. Otherwise, this person wouldn't be your boss. And uh, that means that this person you know, we'll take decisions about your promotions, about your salary, about whether you can stay on, whether you get this new project and so on. And yeah, that's very important. Now, uh, sometimes it's not so much that they are, that the collaborators are not happy with, let's say that they didn't get a promotion, that, that too. But 
So oftentimes it's actually the, the leadership style. So the way the superior talks or, or takes decisions or gives feedback or is condescending or is not, not really appreciative of the work that has been done. And if that accumulates, even, even small things, but if they accumulate over the years, then people can get very frustrated, demotivated. We have a lot of absenteeism. So people just don't go to work and call in sick. Not so much because they, maybe they are sick, but you know, they, they just, they just can't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge amount of potential fallout when that relationship is not balanced or healthy or respectful. Exactly. And, Mm -hmm. and the other way around, it's a huge potential for leaders to, uh, to motivate your collaborators and to sort of get the best out of them in terms of, well, relational, but also really performance. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to continue along this path and talk in more detail about power status, because you and I are both very fascinated by this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we do that, let me give the listeners an overview to this predator-prey partner model, which I mentioned to you briefly. So listeners, there's if you think of these three archetypes, the partner in the middle is the balanced approach where I'm holding high respect for myself, high respect for the other. The problem is, and that's where most of us are living most of the time when all is well, except under pressure, stress, perceived threat, crisis, COVID, or just if we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, (laughs) we could slip into either the predator or the prey. And the predator comes across as arrogant, disrespectful, impatient, maybe sarcastic, maybe condescending. And she tends to hold too much respect for herself, not enough for others. So if Marianne and I are having a disagreement and I go predator on her, it might sound like this. But Marianne, would would you just give me a minute, please? You know, and I'm just all sorts of sarcasm in that tone of my voice. And now I've potentially damaged this relationship with Marianne just by the way I said something. And that's going to take me time to repair and recover that relationship if it's even possible. The other extreme is the prey. That's P-R-E-Y. And the prey is usually a really nice person. She tends to hold too much respect for the others and not enough for herself. Harmony is one of the most important elements for someone who goes prey under pressure. And so if Marianne and I are in conflict or disagreement, a prey might respond like this, but, but Marianne, I, I, I know, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, Marianne, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. It's just, could, could I, I, it's just, I think, I, I think there's something that we should talk about. <laughs> and what's important listeners, and this is really essential, is that when I am too nice, even someone kind and reasonable like Marianne that could even trigger her to become a predator towards me, which is another way of saying that is listeners, you have a tremendous amount of ability to positively influence other people and to uh, get them to recalibrate their own behavior and command greater respect. Um, And this is a model that I talk about was developed by my sister, Pat Kirkland. She's a recovering prey. I'm a recovering predator. That's a story for another day. I'll have Pat back on the show sometime and we can talk more about that. Okay, so with that in mind, Marianne, let's talk about hierarchies. And I guess what I'd like you to first jump into is 
Tell us in detail how hierarchies are formed. Yeah. So um, maybe just to 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 uh, balance off what you just said in terms of the, you know, if the if the if the prey the prey can actually bring out predator behavior in another person that that is maybe not necessarily in in this person's nature. So and and, and that is exactly how how hierarchies form. Meaning that even if there is no hierarchy, no formal hierarchy among people, let's say it's people you meet for the first time, you essentially know nothing about them. Um, you're not that different, but relatively quickly there is an informal hierarchy that will emerge and uh, this informal hierarchy so is is means that one or maybe two people will have slightly more influence over what the group will do than the rest of the group so that can happen in 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 circles of friends when they discuss about uh, which movie are you gonna watch uh, one person might convince the others and will in that particular situation emerge as the leader so i find that very and, and that's something that happens really automatically so uh, as as soon as several people are together there is some sort of um informal hierarchy that builds and as long as the the task of the group or the context doesn't change, it's relatively stable. Uh, now, it's linked also to personality. So some people are more likely to emerge as leaders because they are more maybe predator in uh, how they are. And others are more likely to, to be submissive. And uh, But all depends also on the circumstances. Now, what's interesting is that uh, the, the research has also looked at that in, in dyadic relationships, so uh, which confirms what you just mentioned, meaning that if a person uh, sits in a, in a chair and meets another person and takes up a lot of a room, so very expansive sort of dominant behavior, well, the other person, without even noticing it, will actually take a position where he or she will make herself small. Wow. And that's you know, very this this, this complementary co uh, um, behavior without people being aware. And then if you make yourself very small in the chair, well, the other person will automatically take more space. And what's interesting in that is that people feel relatively satisfied with that. So it's, it's sort of a natural hierarchy that builds. Mm -hmm. So if predator prey well i guess does it create a power struggle then if both parties are satisfied yeah so we can right um because um so so either you know you have this uh, one is sort of dominating the other and both are sort of okay with that but in a lot of situations that also the ones you mentioned it would be irritating because um why would this person go after me so so dominantly. So I will sort of strike back and then we have a power struggle. And um, yeah, um, I think this is where it comes in what you said about the, the partner relationship. Once you're sort of an equal, on an equal level, then partnership is possible. But having said that, I also believe that as interaction partners, also as leaders, we need maybe a little bit of 
everything. We need mm -hmm. a little bit of a prey character sometimes, a little bit of a predator, and a lot of partnership. Because sometimes you need to reassure your high dominant position. Sometimes people don't 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 accept that you're the boss in the room mm -hmm. and then you're sort of forced a little bit to go into predator you can still do it in a in a sort of a nice way which you know in, in your yeah. schema would maybe even be partner I exactly for me and that's something that people often think oh partner means i can't be assertive or directive yeah. or kind and quiet no for me partner is a very wide range as long and it also differs we're going to talk more about um, the difference in bias between men and women between people of different uh, cultures or races and that so there is that that plays out in this model as well though it, the cool thing is there's a lot more freedom that people have to be assertive that they can still do that in a way they're holding high respect for themselves and for the other. Mm -hmm. And going to one of your areas of expertise around nonverbal and verbal, pretty much all these behaviors, what my sister Pat did was she broke it down to body language, voice, and words, mm -hmm. where it becomes, you know, it's the right balance. And that is flexible according to the situation or situations where it becomes, it tips and it's too aggressive or dominant or too submissive and indirect. Yeah, and I think that that's a very important point in my work too, that, you know, you can be very direct and you can be very clear or very assertive and still be respectful towards the other person. So that's something we teach also, and, and I'm sure you do that too, when you give feedback, when you give a performance feedback to, to collaborators, talk about the behavior. Don't tell the person something about their personality. Just, just state the facts and mm -hmm. talk about the facts and how can we change that and why is it not acceptable? Talk about the behavior. And, and that's very difficult also when I teach it to students to actually already see the difference that if I tell a person, well, uh, you, I see you're not motivated to actually fulfill the needs of the client. Well, that's a judgment. You know, what you could say is, um, well, I saw that you let pass the deadline and then the client complained and we want to have a satisfied client. So what happened? And that's a completely different approach than yeah. the attack. Nice. You know, um, we were we mentioned about gender differences. I want to go into more detail with that because let's talk about the the stereotype. There's this belief that women in top leadership positions prevent other women from climbing up this hierarchy, mm -hmm. uh, even more so than top male leaders would do. Is there truth to this? Well, it's very, very widespread and it's called the queen bee syndrome, which is, you know, the, the queen bee, the only queen uh, around that prevents everybody else from, from climbing the, the corporate ladder. And it's very popular. I, I'm not completely sure why, but there is research that shows that it's actually just a myth and not much more. Wow. So the, the sort of the two uh, uh, opposing views are the following. So the one is the queen bee thing, meaning that if you have a woman in power, she's going to prevent other women to climb the ladder. 
Or, and that would be the other view, is that you have a woman in power and she is the role model for all the other women and she would actually encourage the other women um, yeah, to, to, to imitate her or to take her as a role model. And there was an interesting study done recently in, uh, in Brazil who looked at, that looked at uh, mayors of different, um, different uh, villages and, and, um, and cities. Mm-hmm. And they looked at whether when a woman came into office, were there sort of a year later more women in top leadership positions in this political domain than when a man uh, came into office. Okay. And what they found was exactly that the women were or had the function as a role model. So when a woman was in office, she would actually encourage and uh, have more women in responsible positions. Very cool. Yeah. So, so it doesn't seem to really pan out. But okay. the interesting part, I think, is that women do have competition among themselves. But I think it's a stereotype, meaning that we, we're supposed to sort of always be um, empathic and, and, and caring for each other. And competition among women is probably something that we think is sort of unnatural or something. And, and maybe that's why it deserves a new name, like Queen Bee Syndrome or something. Mm. I think it's simple competition, and it exists among women, among men, between women and men. It's just natural. I also wonder if... Like what happens in, you know, in businesses, a lot of women will go in and they'll model men's behavior mm-hmm. or, you know, let's, if we go back 30, 40, 50 years in, and so maybe what women have been doing in the business world is they've been modeling that competitive approach that men, men use more than women. It's not quite as intuitive for a woman to use that approach. And therefore it's gotten like more um, attention than it deserves or you know or it's it's the the story has gotten created as a result of that perhaps i like that interpretation yeah okay good we'll go with that one very possible yeah but it's a myth also to think that that there is no competition among women i did it right thesis actually i showed that that women form women among themselves form hierarchies also informal hierarchies as men group do. The only difference was it took them a little bit longer. So they're, they're just checking out a little bit longer. And then for the male groups, it was more, it was just quicker. So they just sort of went around and they decide, okay, this person is probably the one who knows the most about the topic. So let's give them a lot of speaking time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, it sounds like women spent a little more time making sure that their relationship was can, there was a connection and there was um, that, that relationship was solid. And is it true what you're saying, Marianne, that just because we're in a hierarchy doesn't mean we're in competition with each other? No, actually, once you are in a hierarchical relationship, there's not much competition going Got on. Got it. Because everybody knows their place. Mm. So you get the competition when when the ranking isn't clear anymore or you want to challenge somebody. And mm-hmm. that's when you get the, 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 the competitive behavior, sometimes the aggressive behavior. Mm-hmm. We're going to be taking a break in a couple of minutes. And before we do, I want to see if we can start to dive into this next topic, which is connected to what we've been talking about. 
If leaders get influenced or corrupted by power, is it even possible for people in power to be empathic? Tell me some of your thoughts on that. I might have to interrupt you halfway through. Yeah, I think I want to challenge whether power really corrupts all the time because mm-hmm. we have many wonderful leaders who have power, a lot of power, and they're not corrupt, but maybe they're less in the media. So I think that's one of the things we need to discuss. And uh, and the other is that, that not only me, but you can take uh, Jacinda uh, Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who clearly states that uh, I'm an empathetic leader, but I'm also strong and decisive. And, and I couldn't agree more with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a great role model. Okay, so um, sometimes when I'm in a power position, I'm going to make a confession here, uh, I sometimes misbehave. Um, and so I'm curious to know, how do we cultivate this and protect against overusing our power? Yeah, so, um, so yeah. So maybe we would have to really look at a specific example, what you mean by overusing. So really being abusive or, um, yeah, um, uh, not, not being a good listener or maybe something along those lines. But um, so, so we know that part of it is, uh, is a personality aspect, which doesn't say that you can change it. But we know that some of the personality aspects are related to, to becoming a leader and being actually a good leader. For instance, extroversion is one of these. And um, sometimes extroverted people uh, overall introverts without, you know, a, a, a sort of a... Um, a negative intention, but it's they just dominate unintentionally. Yeah, exactly. It's just a different style. Mm. So, so I'm not sure whether you were talking about that, but I think these, these things can also play and, and create sometimes problems and, and misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's okay. Let's pause here. Mm-hmm. And when we come back from break, we're going to dive into it a little bit more. Uh, now, listeners, if you want to connect more with Marianne, find out more about her, you have a couple options. You can check out her website, vrist.ch. That's spelled V-R-I-S-T dot C-H. And uh, Marianne, what does that stand for? Virtual reality? In, uh, the, <laughs> I should know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to come back during the, after the break if you want. Yes, we'll quiz you on that one when we come back. Okay. So that's vrist.ch. Or you can be sure to check out her book, Leader Spritz, The Interpersonal Leadership Cocktail. And that's spelled L-E-A-D-E-R-S-P-R-I-T-Z. Now, if you're ready to take your superhero partner powers into the next decade, join me for my online leadership presence course. You can check out more on my website, carolcoaching.com. That's with two R's and two L's. When we come back from break, we'll be hearing more from Marianne about the what we started talking about around power and misusing power. And we're also going to be talking about implicit bias. So stay tuned. You're listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Do you have colleagues, family members or neighbors that just drive you crazy sometimes? Do you occasionally find yourself feeling disrespected, mistreated, 
or annoyed by others. As a no-nonsense communication coach, trainer, speaker, and author, Amy Carroll may have a solution for you. For over 35 years, Amy has studied status and power dynamics, what sabotages relationships, results, and how to get desired outcomes in business and personal interactions. Make your partner look good is a philosophy from improvisational theater, as well as Amy's favorite mantra. For the last 20 years, she has been using her superhero powers to inspire individuals and multinationals around the globe to transform their communication and tap into their own partner powers. With concrete behavior changes in voice, body language, words, and attitude, Amy shows clients what to keep and what to change to get more of what you want more often with less hassle. Visit carolcoaching.com today. That's C-A-R-R-O-L-L coaching.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. We want participation from you. Feel free to send an email to amy at carolcoaching.com. Now, back to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Here again is Amy. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Marianne Schmidt-Mast. We've been talking about power, status, and leadership. And... I want to come back to the question we were just starting to explore before the break, Marianne. Let's imagine a scenario where there is a leader that's truly misusing their power. Is it possible to adjust to protect against that overuse? And if so, how? Yeah. So uh, if you're the person who who is sort of yelled upon, if you're the, the subordinate, it actually, the bad news is relatively difficult to do something against yeah. that because you depend and it's very costly. You can lose face. And um, I always say um, power, norm follows power. So um, say it again, norm, norm follows, follows power. power. So it's really the powerful person in the room who sets the norms. Okay. It's very costly, difficult for for the the people with low power to actually speak up and go against the person in the room. So if you want to change uh, um, culture in a in a company, you know, of course you can try your evolution from from the bottom up, but you really should just train your leaders to actually you know not be abusive. Now, what also worked well, so that's not really an option. What what works well is if you have clear statements, again, from the company that says, well, here is the sort of the statement how we behave. This is the code of conduct in our company. And, and that seems to sort of uh, set the tone. Now, again, if your middle manager and one higher up uh, has an abusive leadership style, you tend to copy that 
Uh, so, so it really has to start at, at the top. Yeah. But it's and hard I- to change. You know, it's hard to change also because the top leaders, they don't necessarily get feedback. Right. So, yeah. So they, they some of them- they're not even aware that others no. are suffering from their, from their behavior. Right. When I work with people, because sometimes HR will bring me in, right? And... And I'm, I'm, as I'm, because I'm a recovering predator, it, it's not so scary for me to go toe to toe. Plus my livelihood doesn't depend on this person. Mm-hmm. And so I will call it as I see it. Plus I got a New Yorker streak in me. <laughs> and so this combination allows me to cut to the chase. I also use a lot of humor and playfulness. And I can't tell you the number of times these leaders have been shocked to realize how they're being perceived. Yeah. And, and so using the video is something you and I talked about how powerful video is to close the gap between awareness. And so that's one thing is sometimes, you know, an external person like me will come in and work with the leader. Though I also work with a lot of the underlings as well, Marianne. And the cool thing is what I'm finding is naturally a lot of these people are going prey. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about earlier, that will trigger someone to be even more predator. Yes. Right. So the cool thing is, I don't know if you've experienced this, when I help people to manage themselves and stay partner under pressure, yeah. <laughs> you know, if they're shaking in their boots, as long as that they can't see it from outside. So that means keeping the body still, using short sentences, something called a downward inflection, mm-hmm. clear gestures. And often that kind of behavior can influence that other person to change their own behavior. It's not easy and it takes training. In fact, I'm going to tell listeners to feel free to check out a video on my website. I think it's called Neutralizing the Verbal Aggressor. And it's a great video to help people see exactly what we're talking about here. Would you add anything to that? Yeah. No, I think that that's that's very possible. It needs a lot of, um, yeah, as you said, command of also your nonverbal behavior. Because, um, yeah, very quickly, we just, you know, a, a little movement like, um, don't hurt me. And we try to, <laughs> we try to hide. Uh, it's, it, it takes strength. It takes strength and courage. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there's another interesting thing that, that always strikes me and annoys me that research finds that leaders also tend not so much to listen to experts. This is not so much in, 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 in communication coaching, but more in terms of uh, taking decisions and hard facts. And that's terrible, you know, if, if, if you can't listen to experts. And, and the reason why, on average, they don't listen to experts is they fear that their high status is sort of undermined. Because yeah. then they'll say, like, oh, this person knows more than I do. Yeah. Domain. So that's terrible because, you know, you not knowing in a certain area in telling other people that you don't know is also a strength, but not in the eyes of everybody. No, it's true. I, I work with a lot of leaders to help them see the power of showing their vulnerability. And that's, that's um, a, you know, a, a, a shocking concept for them and, and destabilizing at times. Yeah. Yeah. So Marianne, I'd like to move to, 
more around mindset stereotypes and this idea of implicit bias. Um, and what I'd like you to start with is if giving us a definition of implicit bias, perhaps even an example. Yeah. So implicit bias would be something like um, imagine that you're not now, but later on taking a plane and then imagine that you open the door to the cockpit and you see the pilot and the crew. Now, if I ask you to describe the person, the pilot that you saw, most of you will probably say, yeah, it was a man in his 40s and stuff like that. So, so we have sort of automatic associations with words, actually, like pilot, we rather think of a man than a woman. Or um, if, I, if I tell you um, surgeon, then you also think more easily of a man than a woman. Yeah. And now that's, you're going to tell me, well, okay, but 90% uh, of the surgeons are actually men and not women. So that's a good heuristic. That's true. But what you don't realize is that you sort of got stuck on that. You're not realizing that you're actually picturing just one possibility and then right. there are other possibilities. And that's the implicit bias. Implicit because you're not aware of that the solution is sort of uh, unilateral and that you're stuck in that one. And bias means that it's not completely correct because it's not 100% of the surgeons or 100% of the pilots that are men. So you yeah. can be wrong about your assessment. And the, the dangerous thing about implicit bias is that it can affect your behavior or your judgments. So mm -hmm. if you're if you're in a in a recruitment situation, let's say, and you're you, you sort of implicitly think it should be this young male uh, white person because maybe the person who had the job before that. That was the person that was there. And now you get an application of, a, of, a, of an elderly Asian person or a, a black woman or what have you. And the question is then, are you, are you influenced? And research clearly shows that you are in your assessment of the ability of this person just by superficial uh, indicators that are not relevant for the job meaning yeah. color, gender, age. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a little side note, um, I perform improv at, uh, at UNEAL and with a, troop, a group of scientists. Mm -hmm. And we, when we're performing, I've caught myself a couple times. Like I, one time I made myself an astronaut for the scene and I mentioned something, something my wife, and I realized, oh my gosh, I just made myself a man yeah. because I was also thinking heterosexual. So then I made myself a lesbian astronaut in order to have uh, justify the fact that I had a wife <laughs> because I was like, I was so mad at myself for making yeah. myself a man, you know, and slipping yeah. into that. So quick. I mean, I think that's the first thing about, about stereotypes or implicit bias. Once you can accept that you have them, and, you know, they happen to you. I, I 
it still happens to me, you know, that I talk about, um, well, I have one example of the students when they present a research paper from, mm -hmm. you know, a paper that I assign. Typically, these are important papers, so written by important people. So then they give a presentation about this paper, and usually they say he about the author, although right. you know, if, you write, if you read the first name, it's clearly a woman. And, um, yeah. It, it happens very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, so looking at how implicit bias affects our behavior. So I want to share something with the listeners and um, a little more detail with you, Marianne. So I grew up thinking I was very fair and equal in my views towards all people. <laughs> Well, naive. Unfortunately, I discovered at the age of 19 that I have a negative bias towards people of color, um, which I label my racist thinking. Of course, this was horrifying for me. And my strategies, because so now I'm 58 next week and I am working it, it that thinking hasn't gone away. I see it continue in my life. And it's kind of, is it depressing? It's, it's concerning that, you know, I've been able to conquer other things in my life and I haven't gotten rid of this bias. So I'm going to share with you what my strategy has been. And I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on it mm -hmm. if you have other ideas. So it's what I would call staying vigilant to my thinking. And I challenge my thinking. So, for example, if I'm reacting ne negatively to someone who might be physically disabled or appear mentally challenged, I notice I, I want to catch myself that I'm dismissing them. And then my challenge is right in the moment when it's happening, it might just be as subtle as walking down the street and I see someone like that and I, I will look away. And then I notice myself looking away and the challenge is to swap out my thinking and to say, Amy, if that person in front of you was the opposite of what you're seeing or perceiving or believing right now, um, how might you interact with them? How might you respond? And so, uh, and I, this comes from, you may know Kristen Pressner. She is the woman who, who developed the flip it to test it. And so that's what I call what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I flip it in my head and then I test it out. Would I respond differently? So, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, so the, so so the the awareness or the staying vigilant is really the first step, and research okay. also clearly shows that. So so the way um, uh, research thinks about uh, implicit bias is that it gets activated no matter what. Well, there are a couple of differences, and you can work a little bit on that, but it's very hard. But what you need to do is once you realize it's activated, well, you need to stay vigilant. Ask yourself exactly what you said. So it's this is the awareness part. Then the next step would be the motivation to act against it, which you clearly formulated, right? I don't want to be this person. I want to react differently. So here is this different reaction I want to show. Let's try it out. And, and of course, people need that. It's like if you want to do more sports, you need to find a motivation to do it. And then the third point, which I find interesting, is that you need to have what's called enough cognitive resources available, which essentially means you need to have a little time to think. Mm. If you 
need to take a split-second decision, you're on autopilot. So you're going to be much more influenced by your stereotypes than when you do have the possibility to think about. And the good news is that in many of our daily situations, we do have the time. We're not the police officer who has to decide, do I shoot the person, yes or no, uh, otherwise I get shot. So so that's the good news about it. And, and there was another aspect that was familiar in what you mentioned, which is uh, called the, the, the counter-stereotypical examples. I was thinking when you talked about the, the female or the, the lesbian astronaut. So try to come up with a counter-example once you, you know, you, you sort of realize that, that you're stereotyped in one, one uh, sentence. In one sense, so I have an example. I have a, I have a colleague, professor, and he has um, like rainbow-colored hair. And each time, and he's very, you know, he's, he's very famous and, and wonderful person and, and wonderful presenter, excellent research. But each time he presents, I need thirty seconds a minute to actually focus on his ta- talk. Because I'm looking at the hair and I'm like, why is he having this hair? And I'm like, whatever, doesn't matter, just listen. And um, so, so you need to be aware, you need a little bit of time to adjust. Mm. And then you can also train yourself. You can train yourself and go and look for, for, for people who have, uh, I don't know, have piercings or whatever it is that is irritating to you in a person and then familiarize yourself. I love that idea of going out and searching for it because up until now it was kind of like you're going to go through your life and things are going to happen to you and you got to wish for the best and hope you got time and and then challenge yourself and 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 be vigilant Um, and what you're just suggesting now is find the opportunities to be to allow yourself to be confronted by difference by surprises by reactions um because if you're actively choosing the workout you're going to more likely have that time the space and the willingness to play with it and create that that space yeah exactly and then it becomes just one other odd exemplar in your collection of uh, diverse representations. Mm. It makes me think of an interview I did a few weeks ago with a woman who's an expert on um, ethics, Mm -hmm. uh, Bettina. And she explained that if we give ourselves just three minutes to make an ethical decision as opposed to impulsively choosing, Mm -hmm. we are much, much, much more more likely to make the ethical choice because we've moved ourselves out of the impulsive uh, fight flight because we're, we're, we're tending to go for security and safety. And then we're giving our, you know, three minutes that if you're got a big, important decision to make three minutes seems like, you know, okay, I can find three minutes. Exactly. Yeah, same mechanism. Exactly the same mechanism. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Um, so I'm curious to know, um, talking about overcoming implicit bias, uh, um, is empathy enough to change people's biases? 
it's it's empathy has different aspects and it has the aspects the aspect of of awareness of being you know tuned into the other person and that's sort of the awareness part so so that part is is important um then it also has the perspective taking in it which is another sort of uh, um yeah, mechanism or, 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 or strategy to counter implicit bias and stereotypes. So if you're, I give you an example. Um, so if you're driving and um, you're, you think about when was the last time I went over the speed limit? People typically tell me, oh, I had to fetch my kid, I was already late, or it didn't make any sense anyway, the speed limit there. And then I asked them, okay, fine. Now you're sitting in your car and somebody speeds by you. What are you thinking? And they're all reluctant, but they're all thinking, what an idiot. <laughs> and then... Been there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we are like, okay, same behavior, different reaction, different interpretation. How come? Now, this is something that is called fundamental attribution bias and or error. And uh, if it functions in the following way. If you see a negative behavior in yourself, you justify it, you explain it, you attribute it to something in the environment, not yourself. And if you see exactly the same negative behavior in somebody else, you attribute it, you, you find the cause of this behavior in the personality of this person. So if I trip over, then it's, uh, it's somebody else is like, oh, she's clumsy. But if it happens to me, I'm like, well, why did they put these cables here? And, you know. So in the more you actually try to come up with explanations that come from the situation for negative behavior of others, let's say out groups, the more you can train yourself not to react in that stereotypical way. Okay. So um, this makes me think of the mindset technique I coach myself and other people, which is the making up another story. Mm, yep. And, and it's not to justify that other person's behavior or excuse it. It's meant for me to access empathy because if I can access empathy for their silly, ridiculous, stupid behavior, then I am more likely be able to be, to be able to stay partner with them mm-hmm. in that exchange or, or even if it's two cars passing in my car driving wherever I'm going, um, which is good for my health. <laughs> yeah. My it it really makes you think. I have this, it's, it's unfortunately, again, a car example, but uh, when, when one of my kids was small, about four years old, he was sitting in my car, I was, uh, I was stopping at the red light, the red light would turn green, and the car in front of me wouldn't move. So I'm like, what a stupid guy, like, he's, is he asleep? So let's wake him up, and I honked. And then... My boy said to me, Mommy, maybe something's blocking the road. And I'm like, oh, my God. I just, oh, my God, I'm so bad. And yet you've raised a beautiful child to think that way. It's fine. That's the upside. You made me realize, oh, my God, this is it. I mean, why not just, you know, give the other the, the, the benefit of the doubt? 
Right, right. The benefit of the doubt. You know, we've got to start to wrap up, except there's one thing I remember you telling me um, in this work that you do, you train people to fire themselves. Can you talk about that for just a minute? Yeah. So the idea is that um, empathy. So um, firing another person as a leader is a very stressful task and basically want to get over with quickly. Plus also a lot of leaders think like, well, I'm not going to see that person anymore. So, you know, just tell them and bye. Now that's very damaging for the person, but also for the reputation of the company. So we figured that if we can bring in a little bit more empathy in that Uh, procedure that would be good so we figured that if it happens to myself maybe you know I I would actually be more empathetic so that's what we did we created an avatar that looked like the person a doppelganger and behaved independently of this person and we had the, the people trained to fire their virtual self so, and then the virtual self got either angry or, or disappointed or was in denial and they had to deal with themselves in that particular, uh, um, yeah, um, emotional setting. Fantastic. And what was the result? How did this shift people's behaviors or attitudes? Yeah, so we're we're still trying to really uh, show it. I still think it's a cool idea. Yeah, it should actually work. But but to be completely honest, in that particular study, we didn't find a difference between people who trained with just another avatar or with themselves. Mm-hmm. Now we're just thinking about maybe we didn't measure it correctly. So we're mm-hmm. definitely going to redo it. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but I think there's there's a lot of potential in using these kind of new technologies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How we function. It's very cool. Very cool indeed. So uh, Marianne, I, I want to start moving into a wrap up. We have just a, a minute or two here. What would be your call for action to listeners? Well, as you said at the beginning, for me, being at the workplace, so this is where I do my studies, uh, uh, behavior in the workplace, and uh, it's inherently a lot of the the things we do are really relational, social interactions. We know that 80% of the time a manager spends uh, in activities is an activity that is a social, somehow a social interaction. So I think... I'm convinced that, you know, the better you become, the more you become an expert in social interactions, in expressing yourself clearly with your verbal, nonverbal behavior, with trying to avoid bias, the better leader and maybe finally the better person you become. Beautiful. That's great. And I, listeners, my call for action is for you to check out Marianne's book, Leader Spritz. The Interpersonal Leadership Cocktail. And we'll spell that for you again. L-E-A-D-E-R-S-P-R-I-T-Z. You can connect with Marianne also through her website. So Marianne, the website virist.ch stands for? Virtual Reality Interpersonal Skills Training. Excellent. Okay, great. Listeners, be sure to switch on, tune in, listen up, and be inspired next week when I'll be interviewing Kristen Envig, a pioneer and thought leader in the field of creativity and authentic leadership, inspiring women worldwide to become agents of possibility. Be sure to check that show out. That's on June 18th. And feel free to connect with me on my social media channels, Amy Carroll Coaching. 
Lastly, if you're game for more, I'm going to be hopping over to Facebook Live for five minutes at five minutes past the hour for a short chat on today's call. Marianne, thank you. It's been a lovely conversation. was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you, listeners. You've been listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll on the Voice America Business Channel. Happy partnering, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Join Amy for another edition next Friday at 7 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Central European Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, make it a great week. And remember, make your partner look good. (laughs) 